be in Colossians chapter 4. All right, we'll be looking at uh, verses 5 and 6, but uh, for a little context, again, I will uh, start reading in verse 2. Hear the word of our God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, or rebellion, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. This we ask for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, just a note, as I was reading Colossians, I realized that I had the, must have had the wrong translation up on the computer when I copied and pasted into the sermon notes, because there's a disparity between what the ESV says and what I'm claiming the ESV says in your notes. So just keep that in mind, that I too am fallible in many ways. All right. In uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, you can't even speak this morning. <laughs> in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus introduces to us sort of this concept. He was praying for his disciples, and he says that he left them in the world, meaning he's not going to sort of take them out Oh, you're converted. Now come be with me and go where I'm going to go. But there's still something for you to do. You are to be in the world. But he also has this idea that he brings up in this prayer that they would not be of the world. And so what Jesus talks about there in uh, John 17 is that we are to be present in the world. We are to be engaged with the world. And yet we are not to mirror the world. That's very similar to what Paul is about to say here in Colossians chapter 4. He's going to encourage them to remain engaged with the world, but also, as it says, to be wise about how they engage with the world. And we're going to explore why he says this and what it means for us. Now, the church has often misunderstood this. We have the response of, say, the Amish or the fundamentalists, who thought this, that they should be not of the world and therefore have so removed themselves from the world it's as if they aren't there. Then there are some who thought, we're here. We're to embrace it all. And so they're no different than the world, and so they lose their distinctiveness as Christians. The big idea this morning is that the gospel changes how we speak and act towards unbelievers. Let's begin with the idea, with the truth, that Christ gives wisdom to guard His glory. 
Paul there had been talk, and encouraging them to pray, and particularly to pray for the concept of mission. We talked last week at the very beginning that in this letter, Paul moves from the ideas of, of what Christ has done for us, what Christ then is doing in us through the process of sanctification, and now he's kind of moving to what God is going to do through us in terms of mission to the world. And so this is continuing that, that thought. Paul's been focusing on how to interact in the church and in home since the gospel is a very real thing. He called them to pray for maturity and mission. And there's a, there's a difference, I think, that goes on here. Paul was one who was initiating evangelism opportunities. And as we see, it's going to be a little different in how he speaks to the church. So hang on. But he did expect them to relate to non-Christians. There is a way in which they were to act or behave towards those that were considered outsiders. That there were, there were people that were not part of their community as the church, that were apart from them, and yet they were not to think, I must have nothing to do with them. They were to engage with them in commerce. In fact, I, you know, I saw this thing on Facebook. There's always something on Facebook, you know. A boycott of General Motors because they supported gay marriage. Really? Almost every company does at this point in time. We can't go Amish and, you know, just re- remove ourselves entirely from the world. We, we can do business with people who don't share the same values with us. Anyway, sorry, that was a soapbox. I'm back now. All right. We're not to hide from, from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we're not to sort of create this, this Christian ghetto where we only do business with people who, who share our same values. We're not, in a, in a sense, we're not supposed to be Amish, who are so distinctive that they have absolutely no influence upon the outward world. That's not what Paul is calling us to. We're not to live our lives in fear of how the world may contaminate us. Because that view just sort of understands it as sin is out there and not also in here. Because it's in here. And so Paul says that they're going to act towards outsiders in a particular way. But he says, be wise in how you walk. The emphasis in the Greek here is, in a sense, in wisdom, walk. That idea of walking is sort of the the picture that's often used by Paul to convey the way in which you live, the manner of your lifestyle. And so the the manner in which their lifestyle was to be lived with a wisdom, particularly with regard to how they treat and interact with those who don't share the faith that they have. This is not particular to this letter. In Ephesians 5, in the parallel passage, he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, in Colossae, we have to remember that the Christians were a minority. They were a rel- not only were they a minority, but they were a relatively new thing. Okay? 
And so because of this one small of number, but also relatively new on the, the scene of ideas there in Colossae, they were often viewed by suspicion and fear by the Jews and the Gentiles. There were going to be many uh, things that were misunderstood about them, many false accusations which were cast upon them. And so that kind of colors this notion that they're to be wise. You know, there's, there's enough bad press about us going around. We don't need to add to the bad press by how we interact with people, is essentially what Paul is saying there. Some of the lies that were spread about the early church included misunderstandings of communion because it was often called the love feast. And so people thought it was almost like a wife swap party or something crazy like that. They, they took their own impure thoughts and sort of pressed them upon the rather pure thing that the church was doing. And so there were slanderous comments in that regard. There were some who, for some reason, thought that when we celebrated the Lord's table and we eat of his body and drink of his wine, they, they thought that they were literally doing that. And so the early church was often accused of cannibalism. Sounds crazy to us, right? I hope, I think. But that's what they had to kind of deal with at that point in time. But it wasn't just that that was the problem. There was also the very real sin and foolishness of the Christian community that could create problems for themselves and bring dishonor to God's name. We read uh, from Ezekiel 36, and I want to bring that back up again for a moment here. Verse 20, And wherever they went among God's people, uh, sorry, among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they have had to leave his land. And so the idea that God is saying through Ezekiel is, they have dishonored me because their sin resulted in the exile, first off. And so people are saying, what kind of God do they have? What kind of God it is that they worship? They're now not in their land. And so that could mean any number of things, that he's either too weak or they are too wicked to deal with things. But not only that, but even in the lands that they went in the exile, they still struggled with sin and brought dishonor to his name. This was not an isolated thing because we see in Romans 2, Paul brings this up. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, the Gentiles already had a predisposition to blaspheme the name of God, but what he's saying is it's multiplied, it's amplified because of the, the foolishness and bad behavior of God's people. And we're not to think that this was sort of just rele, you know, relegated to, oh, well, you know, that's them. This is us. We believe in a pure church, right? Well, no. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 2, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. He's talking about people who claim the name of Jesus, and yet, instead of following the Spirit, as we talked about in the membership class yesterday, for those who were here, instead of following the Spirit into obedience, they're following their own fleshly desires into disobedience, and it results in bringing the truth into dishonor. 
In other words, they're living like the old man in Adam, not the new man in Christ. So keep that in mind as we look at all of this. This is within that context of we have been changed by the gospel. We have been united to Jesus Christ. And now we're new men in Adam, uh, Jesus. And therefore, how we live in the church is different and how we live with the world is going to be different. So there's got to be a, a gospel sort of centrality to this that we have in the back of our minds. They were to live with wisdom, to remember that we represent Jesus, and therefore to act in such a way as that we guard His reputation. How might we, perhaps? If you're the Christian at work, and yet at the party for Christmas, you end up sloppy drunk, that's bringing disrepute to the name of Jesus. If on the business trip with your coworkers you go carousing with them and you end up intoxicated and perhaps saying things you shouldn't say, it's bringing dishonor to Jesus. Embezzling from the company, that's another example of what it would mean. Sin that shouldn't find its way within the people of God being practiced in the presence of unbelievers such that the name of Jesus is brought into disrepute. This is not the only place that he talks about this. He also mentions this not only in Ephesians 5, but 1 Thessalonians 4. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent on anybody. So there's a sense in which even though uh, their estimation of us is not the most important estimation of us. We should live in such a manner that if they if they speak poorly of us, as it says in First uh, Peter three, there, it's it's slander and lies, not truth. So it shouldn't be our sin that promotes the bad talk about God, but it really should be something else. And some of them will actually respect us if we live upright and godly lives. Paul continues here in Colossians. Make the most of every opportunity. It's the same phrase he uses in Ephesians, which there is called essentially redeeming the time. Because you know that the time is short, that the days are evil. So we need to remember that our interaction sometimes provides opportunities to do them good and to build relationships. We don't know what a a conversation might produce or an act of compassion might produce. For instance, Jack Miller. He writes in his book, A Faith Worth Sharing, about one instance, and I'll just quote this one section here. Whatever the cause, my willingness to arm wrestle opened up Tony's life to me. He was wise. I mean, I guess I would have thought it was foolish to arm wrestle with somebody. Uh, that's not necessarily directly con- you know, connected to the ministry of the gospel, and yet it was his foolishness and willingness to arm wrestle that showed Tony that maybe I can trust this guy. And soon Tony had opened up his life, not just to Jack, but to the message of the gospel. Jack tells of another story in which um, he's basically almost in an argument with somebody in a parking lot. 
And then someone who was part of that group suddenly goes, hey, wait a minute. Are you John Miller? And he goes, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you picked me up. I was hitchhiking. This is a good guy. And all of a sudden, the, the confrontation got de-escalated, and now there was an opportunity for the gospel to come because Jack had picked up this guy hitchhiking earlier and had been kind to him. I'm not advocating picking up hitchhikers, by the way. Okay, I'm just saying what happened to him. But we don't know what, what the opportunities will produce in the future. They may produce an open door to share the truth, the mystery of Christ. And so we're united with Christ in whom is the wisdom of God. He is full of wisdom, and he grants that wisdom to us. So let us live with wisdom before outsiders. Secondly, Christ gives us words to win hearts. When we interact with non-Christians, our actions aren't the only thing that matter. What we say and how we say it also matters too. And so Paul says that their words and ours are to be full of grace. And so we kind of have to stop for a second. What does he mean by that? What does he mean that they're to be full of grace? Does he mean that, that they're to be gospel-centered and, and that we're, we're supposed to speak always in line with the gospel and, and to uh, you know, basically give the gospel to everybody we meet? Or is he talking more about this idea of, of, of graciousness, kindness and gentleness towards people? I can't read this without thinking of a negative example. Perhaps that's, that shows too much about how my mind works. But Westboro Baptist Church, they do not speak with words full of grace in any way, shape, or form. It's unfortunate that they think that they have essentially a ministry of condemnation instead of the ministry of reconciliation. Because it's not that they're pointing out the sin of others. What they're, they're, they're not pointing this out for, to produce repentance, but they're just condemning. So Paul, I think, would have to sit down with them and say, we need to talk, people. Because your interaction with the outside world is not, portray, not portraying in any way, shape, or form the kindness and goodness of God who saves sinners in Jesus Christ. All you're doing is poking fingers in people's eyes. We are to speak about the gospel if we happen to have opportunity to. doesn't mean every conversation has to go there, okay? There are, there are conversations that just are going to be about sports or about work. or You don't have to try and force Jesus into every conversation. So if you hear me saying that, you're not hearing me right. Okay, you don't need to. I thought of this this morning. You, you're at work, you're at having lunch with your coworkers, and you've got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You don't have to kind of go. You know what? What I like about the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is, like Jesus, the peanuts were crushed. <laughs> but instead of to make peanut butter, he was crushed for our iniquities. And you know, the jelly, that it's made from grapes, which remind me of communion in which we... Okay? That's not what we have to do, folks. <laughs> but you might want to try it sometime and see what, what strange reaction you get. No, I'm not advocating that in any way, shape, or form. 
Dick Lucas, uh, out of England, says that in contrast to Paul's sort of direct initiative and evangelism, in a sense, the evangelism of the Colossian people was meant to be responsive. And so they're not necessarily initiating those gospel conversations, uh, but they're responding to things. But all of our conversations, whether they they are directly about the gospel of Jesus Christ or about work, they should all be gracious. We should treat people well even when we disagree with them about who should be president or, I don't know, which team is better, the Red Sox or the Yankees. But I'll tell you this year who it is. For a change. For a change. Okay. Not only should they be full of grace, but but Paul says they should be seasoned with salt. I'm a salt guy, love salt, like salty snacks. And this is that idea, it's seasoned, so it's not talking about salt as a preservative, it's sort of more salt as a flavoring, as a seasoning. And of course, you can't even think about salt, I think, perhaps without thinking of what Jesus said in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. Not you become the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And he says similar things about the light of the world, but salt. Our conversation not all, not, is, is meant to reflect the fact that we are the salt of the earth. There's something to be there that seasons our conversation that makes others thirsty, perhaps. Now, we're not exactly sure what Paul meant by this. This is a phrase that was often used by the Greeks, and it was used to refer to wit. So, possibly could be that Paul was saying, be full of grace and full of wit. Rabbinical teaching often used this as well, using it to refer to wisdom. So it would mean that let your words be full of grace and be full of wisdom. So not only were our actions to be full of wisdom, but perhaps our words to be full of wisdom. We're not sure exactly which. It's not clear Paul's intention. But they're both good things. And perhaps we should stick them together. Perhaps we should have some wit and some wisdom, which I think results in winsome. That idea of winning people's hearts how you speak, designed to win them, not alienate them. A good example of that, obviously, would be Tim Keller. When I think winsome, I think Tim Keller. I think his book on uh, Reason for God is, is great in how it, it's clear, how it doesn't back down from what we believe, and yet he does it in such a way that he's not alienating those that disagree with him. I have much to learn still, I think, in this regard. There's room for growth for me. And so when we speak with grace and with salt, I think part of what it means is that we we are clear about sin, but the reason we're clear about sin is so that we could call them to faith and repentance, to recognize that, that this is what's how you're practicing that reveals that you're alienated from God and therefore you need to trust Jesus Christ. 
which is very different from how the Westboro Baptist Church does it. For instance, right now, all of the hype is about homosexuality. How we speak about it is very important. Because there are people who want to push us into two extremes. The Westboro Baptist view of, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin, and you're going to a bad place. And there's some who want to just kind of play down and make it sound almost like, well, it's not really sin. And so we need to be bold in declaring, yes, it's sinful. But you know what? We all are. And that is not the reason. That particular sin is not why someone goes to hell. It's their general sinfulness. There's far more about them that leads them to that place. We're all guilty. We all need Jesus. And so it becomes a way in which you expose them to the sufficiency of Christ to remove our sin the sufficiency of Christ to begin to change who we are, the sufficiency of Christ to give us a new identity. That's speech that's full of grace and full of salt that that calls people to something new as opposed to just leaving them in their sin feeling like, well, he's not my friend. That's what I think Paul has in mind here. And that's hard for us because there are certain sins we don't like that they're antithetical to kind of who we are and we, we're tendency because of our own sinfulness is to sort of demonize those individuals and not want to talk with them in a kind fashion and yet the gospel calls us to that. Not only are we to speak in a winsome way but I think the wisdom also means that we are to speak in light of their particular needs and in light of their particular background to, to recognize common ground. And Again, bringing them, pointing them to Christ who is sufficient. I remember one opportunity I had with one of my neighbors. He was a teenager. can't remember. I had to give him a ride because he lost his license or something. <clears throat> and it, suddenly we're having a gospel conversation. Uh, you know, he, he was Roman Catholic. He wasn't a practicing Catholic, but he was Roman Catholic. And so I shared that, you know, hey, I grew up Roman Catholic and and this is what God did. And my, my goal was not to get him to stop being Catholic. My goal was to point him to Jesus, who alone is sufficient. We have those opportunities sometimes. When the word of Christ dwells richly in us, we will reflect its own grace and salt. Third thing. I think a shorter thing. But Christ gives answers for questions and critics. Again, back to that Dick Lucas idea of sort of the response of evangelism. Uh, you know, here it is. Because we're, we're returning to a very similar society to that that the Colossians existed. We are increasingly a minority among uh, population groups in America. We're, we're often now kind of misunderstood. We're, we're beginning to sort of stand out again for the, the, morale, the morals that we hold. For instance, locally, the city of Tucson said no to Grand Canyon University, a city that needs jobs. I don't understand this. A city that needs jobs says no. Want to know why? It's because they didn't fit in with the sexual ethic of Tucson. They were afraid that these uh, Baptists would um, 
stir up trouble in Tucson. And so they said no to an opportunity. See, we're living in a world that's increasingly hostile to us. And sometimes those uh, critiques are built in ignorance. Sometimes people have questions. They don't understand the gospel because the gospel is beginning to fade from the, the corporate memory of culture. And so they seem to think that Christianity means following rules. That you're tightly wound and a Puritan in a negative sense. Some people will have criticisms that are rooted in their ignorance or their prejudice, as we talked about with the love feasts back in the early church. Some people may have valid criticisms because the church is full of sinners. We do err. We do botch it. We have not always acted with grace and salt towards those who are outsiders. And so sometimes their criticisms are valid. What Paul says is that we are to answer everyone. That responsive thing. Not answer them with a punch in the mouth or a bad name back. But we are to, we are to respond instead of shutting them out and shutting them down and turning them off. This is consistent with what Peter says in chapter 3 of his let, first letter. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So that's the posture. Not just for Paul, but for Peter. Now think about that for a moment. What you know about Peter? He was a bit of a big mouth at times. But Peter here, a more mature Peter, Okay, is saying, do this with gentleness and respect. Be bold, be clear, but also be gentle, respectful. And so we are to winsomely provide them with the truth of the matter, to respond to their criticisms or their ignorance or whatever it might be. And sometimes that might be confessing that, yeah, you're right. We have blown it. We sometimes think that we fight like the world instead of loving our enemies. But we teach them that Christians, for instance, share their bread, not their wives. That's the point of the love feast. We share our bread with one another. can't remember who came up with that. I think it might have been, I can't remember if it was Tertullian or not but it's stuck in my head. We're to answer them that the the bread and wine represent Christ's body, represent Christ's blood, that it's a sign of something greater than what it is. And so we, we gently instruct them as to what we actually believe. But here's the thing. It's very hard for us to do that if something else hasn't happened first. Let's go back to chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If the word of Christ is not dwelling in us corporately richly, and therefore us individually richly, guess what's going to happen? 
we're not going to be able to answer these people. We won't know what to say. And it won't help for you to pick up your phone and call, you know, Mike Pixley. Because if the word of Christ is not dwelling richly in us, it's probably not dwelling richly in Mike. And so as a people, this is a, this is a challenge for us, but, but we see that when it does, what opportunities we have. That we can speak to the outsider. We can perhaps know the joy of seeing them come to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So get back to the Scriptures that you may understand what you believe so that you can communicate what you believe. So we see from this that we are in the world. We've been left here by Christ with a mission. And we are to be wise so that we don't forfeit that mission by our own sin or by our fear of contamination. As part of that mission, we are to engage people with loving actions as well as grace-filled words. But we also remember we're not alone. We are united to Christ. And because we're united to Christ, we have access to all the wisdom and power of Jesus. We have the word of Christ, which he's left us which makes us wise with words of grace and salt. And so, don't live in fear. But remember, greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Let's pray. Father, we do admit that oftentimes this talk of mission puts up barriers in our hearts. Sometimes we're captured by the fear of men, the fear of failure, any number of things. But I ask that your spirit would be at work, that we would have the boldness, that we would have the graciousness and the patience that Peter and Paul and the apostles had so that we might see the church grow by conversion, that we would share in that. Father, help us to uh, rethink or at least consider how it is we interact with those who don't know you to recognize how we might have to change and look to you for the wisdom and strength to change it. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.